Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Suzanne Morse joins Cosmo for 321 Go. Then Cosmo interviews Peter H. Smythe, president of the 100 Club of Massachusetts. And Ann Murphy speaks to Brookline Bank's chief credit officer, Bob Rose. First up, 321 Go. Hello, and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA On Air, our deeper look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. Joining me here on 321 Go is Suzanne Morse. Hi, Cosmo. Hey, Suzanne. Filling in for the uh, temporarily absent Cayenne Isaacson, the official voice of OA On Air, and also a frequent contributor to OA On Air. Great to have you back on, Suzanne. Great to be back on. Excellent. Um, Got a couple interesting topics today. Let's talk first, however, about a pretty recent White House visit by young teen pop sensation Olivia Rodrigo to put some shoulder, some, uh, some teen shoulder behind the White House's effort to get more younger people to uh, get vaccinated for the, uh, against COVID-19. Uh, she uh, spent some time in the White House briefing room, uh, much celebrated, and um, sounds like not everyone exactly was aware of, of uh, the depth of her celebrity. Am I right, Suzanne? I believe that is the case. Now, we should say there was a method behind the White House's madness here. I mean, they were, you know, there is a concern that a lot of the cases of the most recent cases of uh, COVID-19 are amongst young people because they're the ones who are less likely to be vaccinated. And obviously with the Delta variant, um, there's concern that, you know, which is much more highly transmissible. There's just concern to get to bring greater awareness to young people as to why they should be getting vaccinated. So that was their thought process behind, you know, bringing Olivia Rodrigo to the white house. A, um, a legitimate and, and, and good public relations strategy. Absolutely. So the way this was kind of announced is the white house or the president, president Biden posted a picture of himself on Instagram as a young man saying, oh, this young person would get vaccinated. Um, Hope you will too. And Olivia Rodrigo responded saying, I'm in, uh, that's why, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the White House tomorrow. Um, Which I caused a bit of a sensation on social media amongst young people. It was like an exciting sensation. And, but amongst some in the uh, Washington media, there was a little bit of a like, wait, who is this again? So there's been a lot of discussion on social media about whether or not uh, the press really was unaware of who she is, or if they were really unaware of who she is, what does that say about their understanding about what's going on outside the world of politics? Do you think perhaps there was some level of dismissiveness of a, you know, teen pop sensation as a, a, a figure of importance in this uh, public health initiative? I mean, it's hard to say because I think on the one level, 
um, there is a certain level where when you're inside the beltway, you really are inside the beltway. And like all of your discussions are about politics. And sometimes you don't have the discussions about books or movies or music or, you know, the other things that, that people have. On the other hand, part of sometimes being inside the beltway, like there's always this funny intersection of sort of real nerdiness kind of interacting with too cool for, for schoolness. So I, it could, I think it probably isn't a put on. I think a lot of people who are, you know, working in, um, in political jobs or in media in DC are working really hard and really long hours. So they probably are sort of unaware of what's going on in the rest of the world. But some of it, I think may be a little bit of a like, uh, this is not as important. So I shouldn't have to know who Olivia Rodrigo is. Yeah. I mean, my view of it is, look, I, I, I wasn't really aware of this particular, uh, um, you know, pop stars, um, uh, body of work. Uh, but I consider myself relatively or, you know, uh, above average plugged in to pop culture and certainly music. But, you know, one of the, just a simple explanation is that I, I think there are just so many, so I'm not going to be like, oh, I didn't know who she was, but right. there's so many categories of uh, entertainment sort of stardom and culture and, and, and categories just within even music um, that I think it's acceptable for just any individual to be like, I'm not familiar with that particular uh, you know, that particular superstar or whatever it is. But in this case, I get your point um, b- because the reaction of uh, folks in the press corps, like, who are we talking about? Number one, you can pretty much educate yourself very quickly on anybody at any time. Well, that is true, yeah. Uh, and, and, and the idea, I never, heard, I never heard of them, as if if you've never heard of them, they don't matter, is kind of a stupid thing for anyone to say including a White House correspondent, or, or to imply with their actions or whatever. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, just, I just wonder if, uh, if they were just kind of, just kind of a group eye roll, like, okay, you know, we got the, uh, we got the teen pop sensation coming in, great, let's get, let's do the press conference. And I, 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 I'm guessing the, the, and you know, educated guessing that, you know, to some degree, the white house press corps expects to see, um, you know, um, f- you know, people in the press room or, uh, you know, who are delivering, uh, you know, critical information and critical briefings about everything from national and global security to, obviously the health crisis. And, and these are the types of things that you kind of just, you, you might shrug at, right? Because it's just like, oh, you know, it's a PR event. And maybe they just got, got caught in that moment. I don't know. I mean. Well, I think there is, I mean, so I, I should well, say. But I, but I think you're right about something. And that is, yeah, inside the beltway. I, I, so much important stuff happens in Washington that I, it's probably pretty easy to feel like, you know what? Who cares about anything else? What yeah. we're covering here you know, is, is, is the most important thing. And, and they don't, you know, that, that press room is, is largely populated with the press corps, which kind of follows the president around everywhere and doesn't really do anything else. 
Well, right. And that is true. I mean, they are sort of in a bubble kind of deliberately because because it is a, you know, a long, uh, you know, long hours and a job, right, where you are in interacting with one group of people, which are sort of the president and, and White House staff. I think um, that what's interesting here, of course, is actually the the end audience isn't wasn't the White House press corps, right? Like the the end audience in this case is um, people posting to social media, uh, you know, pictures of Olivia Rodrigo and President Biden putting sunglasses on, right? So it, there is this kind of mismatch that they're the White House press corps, and it's really important. Um, for delivering, you know, updates, daily news about what's going on inside the White House. But for this particular initiative, the issue is about, you know, the the end uh, audience is, you know, people who are 18, 19, 20, and they're not getting their their information from the White House press corps. They're getting it from Instagram and TikTok and social media and all that kind of stuff, too. So, you know, that's always kind of an interesting disconnect because, the role of the press corps is really important, but for this kind of initiative, they're probably less important because that's not, they're not going to be speaking to the audience that the White House is trying to reach. Agreed. Well, we'll see what happens. I think it's a good initiative. I think it's important for um, a young voice that people, that, that, young, that young Americans can relate to, carries the message of the importance of, uh, of uh, vaccination uh, and, um, and this is how it's done, you know, and, 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 and you can't just do it with one voice, right? So there needs to Absolutely. be, there needs to be other figures that people relate to maybe in, in, you know, you know, other walks of popular American life, sports. And, yep. um, I suspect that's what we're going to see too. I think over the next couple of weeks and in, in next month or so, particularly because there's real fear, fear around the Delta variant, and particularly for young people, I think they are probably going to be reaching out to other people who speak to that population more directly. And, and I think we both agree that's the smart thing for them to do. Indeed. All right, Suzanne, interesting stuff. Thanks a lot. Uh, up next here on three, two, one go and Murphy Number seven, let her talk to Brookline Bank Chief Credit Officer Bob Rose. Welcome to OA On Air. I'm Ann Murphy, partner at Seven Letter O'Neill & Associates. And today we're talking about the local economy as we're now six months into 2021. What's on the horizon here in the greater Boston area? My guest is Bob Rose, Chief Credit Officer of Brookline Bank. Bob, welcome to OA On Air. Well, thanks for having me. What would you like to talk about? Well, Bob, I think it's important to just get a a little bit about your background and your vantage point relative to telling us what you're seeing going on out there. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I'll skip all the gory details, but, you know, I'm the chief credit officer of not only Brookline Bank, but Brookline Bank Corps. um, And and we own two banks, a bank down in Rhode Island and Brookline Bank. And I've been doing this for over 40 years. I, I guess it, it just sort of happened. I didn't intend for it to be that long, but here I am. And you know we're an $8 billion institution and we not only lend locally, but we have two or three national portfolios of loans. And those, those national portfolios are sort of interesting. One is laundromats, another one is tow trucks, and another one is exercise equipment. 
So some slightly different views. But <clears throat> when you think about it, the, the $8 billion that we have are really just, it's paper, right? They're contracts that people sign. And, you know, they do it, they get the money, and they invest in things that, that they think will be successful. They're buying a building, they're buying a business, they're buying more machinery. And um, to the extent that, you know, it's in their self-interest to always pay us, they will. And when it's no longer in their self-interest, they unfortunately cannot. So, you know, the things that we saw going on at this vantage point, you know, maybe kind of, maybe uh, helpful to you and your, and your listeners. Um, I'll tell you in a simple way. People stopped taking risks. They stopped borrowing money. <clears throat> they stopped buying things. And loan portfolios actually shrank um, because that's what people do in times of trouble. They hoard money. Um, they all made their loan payments to the extent they could. And um, they took advantage, besides accumulating cash, they took advantage of the various forms of relief that were available to them. Um, as provided by the government and as provided by banks. And we can go into that a little bit later with some of your other questions. But so the vantage point we have is, <clears throat> I think, unique. Um, and we're now seeing the reverse happening. Everything that, that stopped happening is going the other way now, which is good. So we'll talk about those mm -hmm. in a few minutes. Well, talk about a little bit about like what businesses were the most severely impacted the past year and how are they bouncing back? Well, so of the things that we have here in our company, <clears throat> I, will, I will preface this and by saying what I'm going to mention to you may sound like an odd collection of things, mm -hmm. but the, the things that I don't mention did just fine. Thank you. You know, it's sort of, I, I'm not talking about the more normal things, exercise studios and gyms. Um, that portfolio that we have here is, is across the United States, and we always had a checkerboard of things that were open and things that were ordered closed by a mayor, by a governor, and, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a tough business. You, you cannot charge your customers, you can't charge their, their credit cards or draft their checking accounts if you are not open. So... About 30% of gym members across the country canceled their memberships. Um, and that would have been really focused in the high price gyms and the medium price gyms. The uh, lower price gyms take a Planet Fitness, for example, where it costs $9 to belong per month. You know, people don't necessarily get out of that. Hotels, it's very obvious to say hotels did poorly. Um, the hotels we have, we don't have a lot of them, but they're about 50-50 between business and between those that would be pleasure, resorts, vacation spots. You know, we have things on Block Island and Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard and Newport, Rhode Island and <clears throat> various Rhode Island, other Rhode Island and Connecticut uh, shore. Um, those had a bang up year last year. You know, everyone wanted to take a vacation in a small place. And, and the smaller the place, the better it did, you know, um, because that meant there wasn't an elevator, there wasn't a lobby, and that was great. The business hotels did poorly. Some of them just went to nothing during some months. <clears throat> Completely understandable. Restaurants, indoors, sit down, very bad. Um, anything with a takeout window did beautifully. 
so the fast food, the easy serve kinds of things, we have a, a portfolio of a small portfolio of Dunkin' Donuts. Um, and Dunkin' Donuts had a little, a little dip down um, at the beginning, <clears throat> but you know, people are addicted to coffee and um, most of them have drive up windows and they, they just went completely out the window, which was great. Entertainment venues, of course, poorly uh, performing um, and uh, ordered closed, really. It was not even legal for them to open up. <clears throat> laundromats, you'd think a necessity wouldn't have any issues. But to the extent that laundromats, a lot of the laundromats are in New York City and, you know, dense areas. And if it was in a place where people left their apartments and went out to the suburbs and the exurbs to work from home, um, they didn't need to be in the cities to do, uh, do their laundry, as odd as that may sound. Tow trucks. Now, here's one. So we have a portfolio of uh, loans to tow truck operators. Great, great business, great collateral. Mm -hmm. um, but the one thing we didn't think about, working from home means you're not driving around, means you're not having an accident or breaking down. So business uh, sort of went to a, a slow, slow pace there. Offices. So far, the offices have done okay that we have. But if an office was a hotel where people went in every day and paid to go in, it would have been, they just would have fallen off the face of the earth. The offices were... Um, pretty much deserted, and all of the ancillary businesses around them, around the base of the building, on the street, the restaurants, the dry cleaners, the you name it, um, not doing well. Anything travel-oriented, um, um, <clears throat> um, well, which we have very little, but business-related travel, convention-related, um, didn't do well. So those were the things that in, in this bank <clears throat> that we are familiar with stood out during the pandemic as really having to get creative and work very hard to be successful. Well, you're talking about getting creative and having the bank, you know, helping the customers kind of through this time. So um, how did Brookline Bank participate in that and, and help help their customers? Yeah, two, two or three things we did. You know, the first one <clears throat> was granting deferments of required payments to customers. And that can take a couple of forms. The most common one is stop paying us principal and only make an interest payment on your loan. <clears throat> interest only, we would call that. Um, the second one is a little more uh, helpful to people, but it was in the minority. Just stop your payments altogether. So Brookline Bank was not alone in doing this. This was really ultimately done by almost all banks across the country, um, providing 90-day moratoriums of required payments in those ways that I just mentioned. Now, what was what was kind of interesting to me, the first place I ever saw this in my career, I'll have to um, uh, tell you that was in the blizzard of 78. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I was in my 20s and I was working at Shawmut Bank of Austin and the blizzard of uh, 78 hit. And when we finally were able to go back to work, any customer that said, I'm sorry, I've been very hurt here, I need a a moratorium on my payments to get through this this mess, even though it was short-lived compared to the pandemic. Um, we were happy to do that. First place I saw that. But hurricanes, floods, and other disasters, this is, this is always done to help people. And the national portfolios that we have that I mentioned to you, um, you know, wherever there's a hurricane, we seem to have a laundromat in that town, and, you know, we're happy to help people. But 
upwards of 20% of our customers, 20% of the $8 billion um, received some form of payment deferral. Those have fallen down to below 1% right now. You know, those that remain um, are in um, sort of in, in places that are still struggling with the ability to be open or closed, et cetera. The second thing was um, a government program. You know, banks are used by the federal government to dispense aid and help to people in difficult times. And the uh, very popular Paycheck Protection Program, you may have heard people mention the PPP loans. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's free money. Um, you know, there are requirements that I think the program is now stopped. You know, all the money's been lent. But, um, you know, certain business expenses were eligible for um, assistance of the PPP program. And we made over $600 million in PPP loans to our customers. Um, and these loans are the great part, the thing people love the most about these are they're forgiven in the end. So it is almost like a capital injection from the United States government um, to, um, to your customers. And that's why it was so popular um, and, and necessary. It really helped people uh, get over the hump. There were other programs, you know, one, one we've done a couple of or the, the Main Street Loan Program. Um, that actually is a loan that has to be paid back, but, it, you know, meant to bridge people over the difficult time. But, you know, it, we like to help our customers. We want them to be successful. We don't want them to fail. And we were happy to do these things during this time frame. To hear the full interview with Ann and Bob Rose, please visit our SoundCloud page. All right. Thanks, Ann Murphy. That conversation with Brookline Bank Chief Credit Officer Bob Rose. We're back with Suzanne Moore. Suzanne, the FAA says there were 150 cases of unruly passengers in flight, annoying and harassing other passengers and specifically flight attendants in the past week alone wow. uh, 150 and uh it's 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 that it's, it's the biggest weekly surge so far in about a month's time since the summer started um people are just being horrible uh, uh you know uh on on flights people are 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 taking out their pandemic or post-pandemic frustration on the airlines, specifically on flight attendants. Um, there is, there is, you know, uh, multiple reports, many reports of people refusing to wear masks. On a flight is one of those places still where masks are mandatory, and flight attendants can lose their jobs if they do not enforce FAA regulations, of which that is one. Um, one flight attendant got punched in the head so bad that uh, she had a huge bruise and a welt, and there's been all kinds of incidents reported anecdotally and officially by the FAA. Uh, a couple of flight attendants went on CNBC uh, on the record but didn't identify their employer uh, just to talk about how terrible things have got uh, for them right now on uh, during flights. Yeah, it's... Um... It's a sad situation. And, you know, I do think it's worth noting that um, we're seeing sort of 
incidents of people reporting people being just really angry and um, aggressive towards other people. There was a story I read earlier this week of a restaurant in uh, on the Cape that gave their employees the day off because they were just taking so much abuse from patrons. And, and they said, I that. yeah, it's not everyone, but enough of, you know, they are, they are being yelled at and screamed at, et cetera, enough that they felt like, you know, they had to kind of give them some time off. Um, but I think, you know, in the best of times, flying is really stressful. In the worst of times, it's 10,000 times more stressful. And, and um, I think, you know, unfortunately, the the flight attendants are really bearing the brunt of a lot of societal stress. And that's just not fair to them. Yeah, it's not. I have a completely un, 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 unproven, untested, speculative theory. I, 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 I feel like pe- um, uh, passengers who have more experience flying may, and are, are just kind of for whom it's routine, some of them may be more apt to get, get a little agitated um, right now because they want – a return to that to, to that routine that, that they're used to, but if you're someone like me, I haven't. I just happen, happen to haven't had the opportunity, and, and you know, to fly since the pandemic. I will someday again uh, go on a, a trip that requires that. I just haven't. But I'm I'm uneasy. I'm not like afraid of flying, but I'm uneasy about you know. I'm stressed by the whole experience, getting there early enough, you know, checking the luggage, and then put you know. If you, <laughs> Sad to say, if you're old enough to remember before 9-11 or right after 9-11 uh, easily, uh, where that period where it was incredibly stressful, yeah. the the um, you know the, the first experience people had with removing their belt and their shoes and all, I, I've just come to, I've just kind of priced that into my flying experience. I know that getting on, getting on the plane, even the flight itself, it's going to be, not really a, the it's going to be the least fun part of the trip um and so i imagine the, you know the masks and all that it just adds to that for me so i don't think that i i'm someone who will and i'm and, and i kind of get agitated by getting being waiting in line and stuff like that but i don't think i'm someone who's apt to lose it on a flight because of a mask or because of you know Flight attendant gave me, uh, you know, a, a strange look. Whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but people are doing that, and, and and you're right. It was an ice cream parlor on the Cape, and, and they were, you know, customers were just abusive yeah. about their ice cream. Um, at a time when, you know, God help us all, we were still going through this this pandemic. So it's um, mental health and uh, emotional. Um, sort of evenness, I really think have just taken a beating and, uh, and, and now people are like, I'm done. I want life back and don't get in my way. Yeah. And I, so it's an interesting point because I do think part of why maybe in the last week or so there's been such a surge is there's still a lot of uncertainty out, out there. Right. I mean, we thought sort of a month ago, okay, vaccines are really ramping up and it looks like we're going to hit these important goals. But then, you know, we've had the the rise of the Delta variant, which we talked about in the previous seg- segment. And 
suddenly there is a you know discussion again of like well because of the delta variant because there's some you know breakthrough cases of infection even if you're vaccinated maybe still a good idea to wear um, a mask if you're indoors and you know that is i think creating a lot of uncertainty and of course masks themselves have become politicized so i suspect what we're what we're seeing manifested in these kinds of incidences are people's uh, slow dawning, slow recognition that life is going to be different going forward, even with vaccinations and even with uh, some return to what life was like, you know, in December of 2019 or whatever date prior to the pandemic you want to say, it's not going to be the same. It is going to be a different world that we're in. And I think a lot of people may be pushing back against that. And unfortunately, again, the people who are bearing the brunt of it are people like flight attendants or the person at the ice cream parlor who's also not responsible for, the, <laughs> for, for any of this. But, you know, they're in a position that they, they are, you know, people are taking their frustrations out of, on them. And that's just really awful position to be in if you're the flight attendant or, you know, the ice cream parlor server or what have you. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to go on to a tangent. I actually would like to come back to this topic in the future with you, Suzanne. Uh, sure. And that is the, because a lot of this angst on, air, on, um, uh, on airline flights is, is about mask regular, you know, mask uh, regulations it's you know i'm fascinated by the rapidly moving target of sort of or the the rapidly moving stigma of mask wearing and how it has moved so quickly from one extreme to another and then back to another yeah and in between it, it's 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 really amazing um that the assumptions based on whether you're wearing a mask or not have changed so much in the past 18 months and that it's, it's hard to tell what's the right thing to do. Um, you know, depending on where you are, my, my, I was not, but my, my family or a couple people, in my family were in New York city having left Boston just over the past weekend, um, for a little weekend trip. And it was, it was really enjoyable, enjoyable. But if you walk around Boston right now or Cambridge or anywhere, you know, outdoors, Mono, a, 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 you know, obvious minority of people are wearing masks outdoors right now. The masks have come off. Right. Um, and then indoors depends on the business, depends on the setting. Obviously, the you know public transportation, yes. Certain buildings, yes. Uh, uh, but they're off. New York City, as anecdotally reported to me, basically a university. Everyone is is wearing masks outdoors, or or, or the majority, oh, most people are. Um, which is, which I find fascinating. It's depend. And then, you know, go to Texas or Florida eight months ago, people weren't wearing masks, but people draw these different conclusions right now. And and they range from, Oh, that person must not be vaccinated or, Oh, why is that person wearing a mask? Are they anti-vax or what's wrong with them? Or, Oh, they're afraid. It's like these, they draw these conclusions are being drawn. Uh, and, and a stigma is being attached. Whereas a year ago, it's like, hey, what's wrong with you? Wear yeah. a mask. What's your problem? You know, we're all in this well, together. 
I think because, so I think it's an interesting point because I think at the end of the day, part of what the mask is, is, is a symbol of this, this era that we're living in, right? It's the most visible symbol because you don't know if someone got vaccinated one way or the other, unless they tell you, but, but the fact that people are or are not wearing masks is still a representation of the fact that we are living through this time of COVID-19. Yeah. And I think it's just going to continue to generate this kind of discussion um, for the foreseeable future. Cause I don't know when this really gets to a place where um where we're really past it. I mean, to me, this has been such a disruptive period of time that I think a hundred years from now, people will be talking about this, this era of American history and global history to, to be clear. Um, and the masks are, are to me, you know, just like you see movies from the, or, you know, from the world war two era that would indicate that you're in world war two there's going to be books and movies and TV shows and, and whatever the next iteration of pop culture looks like where people are going to be wearing masks and you're immediately going to know you're talking about 2020 or 2021. So I think that explains part of the reason why it seems to set so many people off. Agreed. All right. Be nice to your flight attendants. Give the ice cream kid a break. Chill out. I think we can all agree on that. Knock it off. All right, Suzanne. Thanks a lot. Great talking to you. That's going to do it for this edition of 321Go, recorded remotely in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and occasionally in locations around the country. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Next on OA On Air, we're joined by Peter Smythe, former chairman, president, and CEO of Greater Media, member of the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. He's a board member of America Media, chairman of Home-Based Media Lab. He's on the board of WBUR, and he is the current president of the 100 Club of Massachusetts. Peter Smythe, thanks so much for joining us on OA On Air. Cosmos, thank you for having me. I'm very uh, honored to be here today and to participate in this uh, incredible thing that you guys have been doing. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a real treat to have you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to call you a friend and, and someone I worked with for years. Uh, truly a giant of the broadcast industry and still uh, really leaving a big footprint as a consultant and uh, uh, a, a, a provider of sage advice to people in the industry. Uh, essentially every day in, in, in one form or another. Um, but I want to talk to you about the 100 Club, which I know is a, um, a cause that's not just incredibly important to you, but has become uh, really a, 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 a critical sort of central part of your current sort of public and professional profile. Uh, the mission of the 100 Club is incredibly important, serving, supporting uh, the families of fallen police and firefighters. Um, uh, in the line of duty or otherwise. Um, Peter, talk to me about the, the history of the club, your involvement, uh, and then let's get into what your, um, your role is as president. Uh, well, again, thank you for having me here today. And uh, yes, we have been pals for many, many years. We're together during the 
the heyday of Greater Media, which I am uh, internally grateful to you for. Um, my, my involvement with the 100 Club began about 15 years ago. Uh, a mentor in my life and person on my own personal board of directors is a man by the name of Norman Knight. And he, he was one of the founding members of the organization over 60 years ago. And he introduced me to the organization and several years later, I went on the board. And parallel to my time of running Greater Media, I served on the board of the 100 Club. And um, I, I'm, I'm honored to be president of today because as a philanthropist, when you look at what the firefighters and the police do for us today, um, we are very, very fortunate people. And this organization serves those who serve us. And it, it meets the uh, families at the most tragic time of their lives. And the passing of a firefighter or a police officer happens. And it's a bridge between there and trying to get them back to some semblance of a, of a life. And what the 100 Club does, which makes it different from everybody else, yes, it gives money at the time of the tragedy but it also stays with the families throughout the rest of their lives. And to me, there's no greater cause uh, than having the ability to work with a family or a partner in helping them get through that tragic moment and then staying with them and then trying to make sure that we help their children and we help them with you know, uh, mental illness through the uh, home-based organization. So there's many different things that we do and I just find it an incredible mission and being president after Norman Knight was president and CEO who was a mentor to me and helped me build my broadcast career. Uh, it's just uh, an incredible blessing and an incredible uh, opportunity for somebody like me. You know, I know in the, the immediate aftermath of, uh, of such a tragic event in the, in the lives of a family, um, of, a, of, a, of an officer or a firefighter who, who's, um, lost uh, in, the, in the line of duty or on the job. Um, you know, the financial support that the 100 Club provides is, is critical uh, and, and is, is, uh, can be a real source of relief, but we've talked about this. That's really the beginning of the relationship, right? It, 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 it's, not, it's, not just yeah, that, it's, it's not just about that. It's the beginning of, a, of, of, a, of, a, of an indefinite relationship to, to support that family, right? Yes, I think that where it begins is uh, we meet them, as, as I said, at the most tragic time of their life. And then what they really need is when everything is done, they need that community. It, it's, it's a club that you never want to join. But the, the beneficiaries or the people, the widows, people that have lost a loved one, that community that we try to build for them is, is so important because they can, they're the ones that can identify with what's happened. They're the ones that can talk to each other and help the young one on how to move forward. Uh, one of our board members has done an outstanding job of reaching out to the widows and having coffees and teas and things like that. And uh, on August 7th, we're taking, I think it's the 7th, we're taking 50 widows out whale watching. And it's, it's that camaraderie. It's that, trying to be there and just trying to bring these women and men together so that they have an opportunity to have that community, to have that sharing. And what it also does is it helps them to know that somebody still cares. I'm not saying that the police and the firefighters don't do an outstanding job, but our club is there solely just to be a, a beneficiary to the, to, the, to the widows. That's primarily what we do. And it's also when you think of 
what the police and the firefighters do for us. We serve those who serve us. And that's what it's all about. And it's a way of recognizing that we're grateful. We're a grateful Massachusetts is a grateful state for what they do. Uh, we understand, or we try to understand the difficulties that they face, and at the same time, be there to help their families. We're talking to Peter Smythe, president of the 100 Club of Massachusetts. Peter, you're also involved with the Home Base Foundation, or Home Base, uh, which is part of the Red Sox Foundation and a Mass General Hospital program. Um, and it, Recently, there was a there was a partnership or an alliance um, of sorts forged between the Hundred Club and, and, and Home Base, um, and, and you're certainly one of the common elements to that. Can you talk about about how that extends the service? Sure, uh, I'm a huge fan of Home Base. Uh, Jack Hammond and Michael Hollard, who run that, are uh, just outstanding human beings. I can't say enough good things about them. And Home Base was a a, a great great, great byproduct of the Red Sox and the Mass General Hospital coming together and trying to help veterans from Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, Navy SEALs. And what it does is it treats uh, post-traumatic brain injury. It, it, it really treats the invisible wounds of war. And uh, we built a clinic over in Charlestown. Uh, we have constant cohorts going through there. Um, and I served, I was one of the founders of the Media Lab over there, uh, which has done extremely well. But what it's really about is, is um, serving people who suffer from depression, suicide. I mean, when you look at the mental illness in the United States today, it's one of the things that, yes, part of the stigma has come off from it, but it's still there. And our job is to reach out to these men and women who suffer from thoughts of suicide, depression, PTSD, these, these invisible wounds that people don't talk about. So in one of our many meetings with the organization of the 100 Club, we were looking ways to offer uh, veterans and the police and the firefighters a way to give them access to probably the best quality care of the psychiatric and all the other things that Mass General has to offer to our veteran police officers and firefighters. So we have a partnership with them that if a firefighter or a police officer or a state police officer feels and is a veteran um, and feels emotional distress, depression, or suicidal, you know, suicide is a big issue inside all these organizations. Uh, we have a way to connect them through home base and get them the proper medical care that they need at no cost to them. And I just think it's a great benefit. Uh, we just rolled it out about six months ago. Uh, it's a great partnership between two terrific organizations. And uh, I'm honored just to be a small part and a great opportunity for those who serve us. That's, a, that's you said it, two terrific, two important organizations coming together to uh, improve and expand service. That's great stuff. You know, Peter, it wouldn't just be, I wouldn't just be remiss. It would be derelict criminal if I, if I had, uh, such a innovator, uh, uh, and, uh, a giant of broadcasting on our little podcast and, and didn't at least, uh, it's not little now. It's not little. And, and, and didn't ask about the industry and, and maybe just sort of one or two things, observations right now, as, as you sit here, uh, a few years out, 
from uh, sort of bringing the, 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 the remarkable history of greater media to a, uh, a, a you know, a denouement with the sale to, uh, uh, to uh, Beasley, but the business and what's important right now for radio broadcasting and audio content and, 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 and how this type of content has expanded across multiple platforms, what's the key for it sustaining and, and continuing to be a, uh, a business that can, can be successful, uh, not just in entertainment, information and news, but financially, uh, knowing that other sectors of the media, certainly my former sector and the newspaper business, uh, that you can avoid those types of, of pitfalls if you haven't already? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, and, uh, it, it has many dimensions. Like a to it was a thesis. It was a, a thesis wrapped into a question. Sorry, I've got a long <laughs> Cosmos, you are a very intelligent man. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, we were very fortunate uh, to... Uh, to have run Greater Media. It was one of the largest privately held broadcast companies in the country. Um, it was the men and women that made that company special and the culture that we had created there. I'm very proud of what we did and I'm very honored and humbled by the men and women that I got to work with. They were the real rock stars. They were the real ones that did it. Today, the, uh, the landscape of audio entertainment has changed dramatically. Here we are sitting on a podcast, the two of us talking about what's going on in, the, in society, but also talking about what's going on in the media world. And podcasting has become a major component of most people's morning drive to work, most people's when they're jogging. You know, you look at the success of Joe Rogan. I mean, this guy started as a podcaster and now he's on Spotify reaching millions of people a week. Um, I think streaming audio has become very important. If you look at uh, some of the major talent across the United States, you know, most of them have moved to a streaming platform because they want to increase their distribution. And they kind of know what that great Gretzky line is where the puck is going to be. I think what traditional radio companies, if I was still running one today, it's all about the people. The people are what make it special. The people are what makes it happen. And you have to treat the men and women in your organization the way you'd like to be treated. And I think that with the pressures of the pandemic and the economic pressures and the diversity in the listenership of uh, audio, radio in particular, um, this isn't a time to be cutting new companies, cutting just expenses to the operating profits and Wall Street's projections, but this is a time to be investing and having the intestinal fortitude to say, I'm going to find the next, let's say, Matt Siegel or wherever it may be. Um, and we're going to invest in the research and the development of these radio stations, which is difficult to do uh, because of the economic pressures that they face. But if you don't do the investing now, if you don't have a strong research and development department, if you don't have a way to look inside your own organization and reinvent, it, uh, then you're going to be faced with problems because the traditional media model is not going to work. If you look at newspapers, um, you know, the Boston Herald has suffered dramatically, the Boston Globe is suffering. Um, newspaper across the country is not doing well. Uh, when I had greater media, we were on the group of 
local community newspapers and uh, at one point they were making 20 cents on the dollar and then all of a sudden we couldn't even keep them in business uh, so i think you see this change and i think that it's going to be innovators and entrepreneurs that need to come into this business just not people who want a job it's people who want to change the future and i think that's the challenge that got to me that it was an entrepreneurial business with a great opportunity and i still think there is great opportunity but we have to break the model of cutting our way to success instead of creating our way to success so that would be my advice i would give broadcasters today excellent advice it is thank you so much Peter Smythe, president of the 100 Club, member of the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Uh, terrific words. Thanks for joining us on All Way On Air, and we will uh, definitely ask you to come back again soon. Thank you, Cosmos. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be here today. All right, take care. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.